Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Vinny. Who was a young Kevin? <laughs> yeah, I, I did always do well in school, but I'm probably sort of the opposite of a lot of your guests because I, I started out very entrepreneurial. I had my own small business. I had a little signed subcontracting business for about 17 years uh, that started in Oklahoma and then, and then expanded to Arizona and, uh, and, you know, operated that business for about 17 years. And then I decided to switch into finance. Uh, and so I sold that business in 2010 and it, mostly because I just really enjoyed, I was good at sort of tactical investing. I enjoyed doing it and went back to school and, and got a graduate degree in finance. And when I got out of school, um, I was sort of, you know, slowly uh, looking at ways to to get into that industry. When I came upon, you know, just doing personal research came upon this uh, the story as I, I was sort of researching to see about investing in home builders. And and so I was just looking at, you know, all the ups and downs of that market for the last 20 years and just from the get go, kept finding the basic data and the basic empirical facts about what happened, counteracting the conventional wisdom. Uh, and so I really um, this wasn't a planned uh, career change, but just because I was so compelled by the content of what I was finding. I sort of accidentally fell into this scholar path and this policy uh, path of sort of relearning uh, the, le the, the true lessons we should have learned about what happened in 2000 to 2007. Uh, and, and now instead of instead of being in the finance field, I've, you know, I occasionally go to Capitol Hill and the, and the White House in Washington, D.C. and, you know, talk to people about things, things they should be doing to um, to get the economy on a better path. But there's also a lot to think about in terms of, you know, real estate, any, anything in the real estate field in terms of rethinking, uh, you know, what happened then, how that's led to today and, and what will be happening in housing going forward. Well, let's rewind a little bit and go back into the, the journey aspect of it, right? So you're, you're making money in a business that you started. You give that up to go back yeah. to school. Now, from there, you find information that you feel is very important for other people to know, right? Yeah. Are you? Do you have a, a side gig? How are you making money? How are you living? Because I mean, this is usually later. I mean, when you have someone that has a passion project, I think for the most part, it's like I have to have some kind of way to feed my myself, <laughs> have a house to live. You know. So, what was that that mindset, that process that you were going through at that time? Yeah. So at the time, I was really uh, I was managing sort of personal money, and so we were we were. Uh, I was making a living with that, um, uh, but it had there, there's there have been some difficult times because because I I, I don't know that I've ever been uh, to a point that you could say I was safely independently wealthy, um, and, ac and actually there were some difficult years uh, where after I had discovered this is what I'm here to do nobody else has seen you know seen this and discovered the people uh, that are more qualified than me to take on this topic, aren't taking it on, uh, you know, it, by the time this project uh, sort of took over my, you know, my passions, um, there were some lean years uh, there uh, uh, where I sort of had to, 
work second jobs and 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 sort of get by uh, until some of the you know some of the support came to continue writing the books. Um, and and so yeah, I, I'm not sure that I have a lot of career advice. <laughs> I don't think I would uh, tell anybody to do what I've done as a you know in terms of uh, uh, you know making smart career decisions. But uh, but I was sort of overtaken by the idea and and just um, knew that it was important enough to follow up that you know uh, if I if I continued sort of down that path, the support would come because it was important enough. Well, I mean, I think a lot of us go uh, from either away from pain or towards pleasure, right? So was the the pain of those lean years not enough to push you away from this pleasure of of succeeding in this in this route and kind of making sure the world knows uh, about the stuff that you found? Yeah, I think so. There was a little bit of that. And I think a little bit of just um, sort of... Um, uh, support for the project and being able to do it um, sort of coming in time to sort of, uh, you know, be able to, to um, save me from difficult decisions of giving it up, you know, so. Um, uh, well, well, let's, let's talk about the Let's talk about the findings. So, you, so you're looking originally for an investment, right? That's kind of how you're looking at it. You're looking at the market, kind of trying to figure that out. Yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking back in 2015, 2016, um, you know, gosh, the home builders have been down for so long that there's probably some good investments there. Um, you know, I, uh, the first step on that pro process is how many how many excess homes had been built, how many unqualified uh, buyers had they, you know, had come into the market before. Uh, and then, you know, the the initial idea is, oh, the pendulum is probably probably now swung too far in the other direction. So there, so there's some opportunity for home builders to uh, to expand maybe more than the market expects them to, and and so the the shock to me was that looking back at that 2000 to 2007 period, I just couldn't find actual evidence of excess. I the, there was no increase on net of unqualified borrowers. Um, the, the average homeowner in 2007 had a higher uh, income compared to a renter than the average homeowner in 2000 or 1995 had had, um, things like that. Uh, uh, um, households uh, with, with debt payments uh, that they consider distressed, where say your debt payments are taking more than 40% of your income. Um, uh, all of the increase in that was in households with the highest incomes. There wasn't an increase in uh, median income or low income households of taking on too much debt. So all these narratives we hear about that period just simply don't show up in the data and nobody has, uh, it's not like excuses were made for those things. Nobody had just even bothered to notice how many things were wrong um, about the housing market. And so, um, you know, seeing these surprising things, I, I, I had given myself the time and and the ability to sort of take the next step and not say, oh, that's an outlier. There must be some reason why that doesn't look right, and just ignore it. I kept following my nose down those paths, and then I ended up with this giant narrative about the period that really overturns everything we thought we knew about the housing market. So, what do you think, in your opinion, um, actually happened? I, th I think by the time we got to 2007, um, the, just the Federal Reserve was slowing the economy down too much. 
Um, and, and so even by early 2006, housing starts had started to decline pretty uh, precipitously. Um, and so that had been going on for a good year and a half when, say, in late 2007, the bottom really fell out of, it, of everything in terms of, say, home prices declining and that sort of thing. And <clears throat> over that time, instead of taking account of that, um, the Fed just increasingly sort of believed its critics. The, the Fed increasingly um, believed that, oh, housing starts are collapsing because, because our critics were right and we had stimulated too much in 2004 and 2005. And instead of reversing courses, they would have any time in, in the past 80 years when housing starts would have dropped that far. Instead, they just kept turning the screws tighter, thinking, oh, we were even more wrong in 2005 than we thought we were. Uh, and so I really sort of put the, you know, put it at their feet, what then happens throughout 2008. Um, and then there's, there's sort of a second, uh, sort of a, a, it's a one-two punch because by the time the Fed finally started uh, um, stimulating in 2009 and stabilizing the economy, uh, again, the entire country was, um, you know, sort of kept looking for people to blame, you know, things we had done in the past that made all of this inevitable. And so one of the things was lenders or speculators in housing or unqualified buyers. And so then we, we really turned the screws on mortgage lending. And so over the course of 2008, the, the quality of the average borrower that got an approved mortgage uh, just shifted in, in extreme ways that had never happened in the past. Uh, so that by 2009 until uh, up till today, millions of households that would have gotten a mortgage very easily anytime in the last 40 years can't anymore. Uh, and so after that 2000, after 2008, again, something that just nobody really has even bothered to notice is that in working class neighborhoods that had, that had always had affordable houses that were still affordable during the so-called bubble, those prices in those neighborhoods collapsed after 2008 because we stopped uh, allowing people in those neighborhoods to get a mortgage. Um, and the, all of that was done with an eye toward affordability. Um, uh, the houses had become unaffordable and it was because all these people were taking on more costs than they could handle. But really rent is the more, more important fundamental factor on affordability. And the irony is that because we've sort of cut out these entry level home buyers for the last 15 years, uh, that has cut out entry level building. And, you know, compared to the, up the years up through about 2006, we would build more than a half a million homes a year that the selling price was less than $200,000. Um, by, uh, by the last couple of years, that's down to like 70,000 a year. So because there's no new houses, you know, we basically cut out, it's like a donut hole in the middle of the housing market. There's a bunch of apartments going up and people that can get mortgages that have high incomes can have houses built. And there's a stone at hole in the middle that we've cut out of the housing supply. And so the irony is that's making rents go up in every city now, including cities that used to be and should be affordable. Um, and so now prices in all those low end neighborhoods are going up, uh, but it's because the rents are so high. So if you're not an owner in one of those neighborhoods, the, you know, the screws have still, started turning in 2008 and they're still turning and today increasingly people are talking about you know this housing affordability problem uh and at the core of it it's because we stopped letting people in those neighborhoods get mortgages 
So frequently now you can you can go on Zillow now all over the country and you can go to any neighborhood where where houses sell for 150 to 300 thousand dollars a piece and the the mortgage payment on that house will tend to be much lower than what the rental payment is for the same house uh, but we won't let the tenant in that house get the mortgage to actually make their budget better <laughs> because when you say they won't allow i mean what do you mean there well uh, you know, there's sort of a web of regulations that have been put in place, uh, you know, since 2007. I mean, that whole private securitization subprime market collapsed, you know, in 2007. And then in 2008, the government took over Fannie and Freddie. And when they did that, the regulators severely tightened the underwriting at Fannie and Freddie and the FHA. So, you know, from that point on, uh, the federal government has um, has really had a, more control than they used to over lending standards because they're enacted directly through all these federal uh, mortgage conduits. And, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, you know, that's sort of all in their black box of underwriting. So it's hard to say exactly uh, what prevents each individual uh, home uh, household from qualifying. But just if you look at credit scores, the average credit score be before 2008 had been around the uh, 710 to 720 level, going back as long as they have data on that. That went up on the average approved mortgage that went up to like 760 by 2009, and it stayed pretty much at that level since then. Well, I mean, you can purchase a home using a, a FHA loan at 580, even though most lenders want 620. I mean... So and and then the debt to income, I mean, it definitely does vary. You're talking about forty two percent. I mean, it's it, it, I I mean, this is my opinion dealing with dealing with the, the business, and I'm only here in California, Southern California. Um, but it's more about the properties, finding the right properties for these people. I mean, I know here they're they're slowly trying to um, uh, make deals with the developers that they have to have X amount of properties as affordable units. Mm -hmm. um to give grants and things like that um so i mean I'm, tr I'm just trying to dive deeper into who do you think is is holding down i guess the the lower the, the lower middle class into to purchasing yeah yeah so I, actually i would say that uh, san diego is a good example because i would put the country into sort of two we really have two different housing markets um yeah. and yeah. So I would take new, the in terms of metropolitan areas, you've got New York City, Boston, San Francisco, and San Jose, Los Angeles, and San Diego, that are very distinct markets. They're much more expensive than every other market. Um, uh, the rents that that people have, to, you know, the percentage of people's incomes in those cities that go to rent is very much higher than other uh, cities, um, and and really the one thing. So what one of the things I sort of push back on is that um oh there's this idea of superstar cities that people talk about that oh these cities have become popular for the you know for highly productive workers or people with high incomes or you know rich people that buy uh pied -a terre or whatever um and all those things are probably true to an extent but the one thing that those five metropolitan areas clearly do differ from every other metropolitan area in is that they approve much lower new housing uh, permits 
um, than any other city. So, for instance, throughout uh, San Diego is sort of a recent, uh, you know, up through the late 90s, they were still building at a somewhat decent rate. But you look like a, at a metro area like L.A., um, like in that bubble time from, uh, you know, from 2000 to 2005, they they permitted uh, on the metropolitan area level, they were permitting new houses at a slower rate than Detroit was. So that that's the that's these cities are permitting even at a lower rate than the Rust Belt cities. So so what happens is that drives all the costs up in those cities. So in a city like San Diego, I wouldn't necessarily say that there's that there's a missing home buyers market for uh people with lower incomes because San Diego has constricted supply so much that people with lower incomes really can't afford to live there as renters or owners. Well, what they've mean at least done here is they've, because I mean, we're, um, uh, we have so much, I mean, not enough land to build on. So they have made it um, a higher density mm-hmm. in certain areas for ADUs, granny flats and things like that. Yeah. uh um for the the crisis but yes to, to your agree we were we we're pretty much on a hold for uh permits on building for the last couple of years and it seems like the last maybe two or so years they've really opened it up a lot more um mm-hmm. but yeah i mean i it's so you, do you think then i I'm, I'm i'm and i'm trying to put the piece together is it mm-hmm. it's just because the government's holding back on allowing permits to go through for new bills and making it more difficult or at least in the past that's been one of the issues of taking away affordable uh, housing or one of the issues yeah so so partly part of of sort of the story that i put together is that um during the bubble time the boom time and and in fact it's it's happening again now even though home building isn't nearly at the level that it was say in 2005 but in that in that in that 2000, say four to six period, um, Americans were increasing our, our consumption of housing. Um, and there's there's no reason why that should be a problem. Uh, you know, for the past 50 or 60 years, there've been a lot of times where say average home household size has declined just because of lower fertility rates or lower uh, marriage rates and, you know, all sorts of, uh, all sorts of things. And, um, and so that was happening at a very moderate level. We weren't really increasing our real consumption of housing any more than we had, uh, you know, through much of the mid 20th century. But because these cities have become so bound up in local supply constraints, um, if we if we're consuming more housing per capita, there's basically a cap of how many houses are in these cities. And so it necessarily forces this uh, segregation, a migration event. Um, So San Diego, uh, the metropolitan area in San Diego never actually went to negative population growth, but all those others did. New York City and Boston and San Francisco and LA during that boom period actually had declining total population because until they can loosen supply politically in those cities, anytime Americans uh, try to consume, try to increase their consumption of housing at a moderate pace, along with our incomes. Um, it has to lead to a depopulation in those cities, um, and so really, what was happening? Uh, the boom wasn't making it so that people were building or were moving to LA uh, and building in LA. The the boom was making it so people were moving from LA to the places that could build. 
So, so that's why you have these two separate sides of the coin, these what I call the closed access cities that aren't building enough. Um, and then the Phoenixes and the Las Vegases and, and Orlando and Miami and Tampa. So Florida tends to take that flow from the New York and Boston areas. Um, so, so back then what you had is that you had a part of the country where they're politically un, incapable of building enough homes uh, and that's why prices were high. And then you had these other places that were that were suddenly growing faster. They, they're places that tend to build a lot of homes, but suddenly they were growing even faster than they could build because they had this inflow of, of basically housing refugees, uh, people that could afford to bid up the rents and prices in places like LA and San Diego were claiming the housing stock. And so millions of households with lower incomes generally sort of a mixture. Some people with lower incomes, some people that owned homes that were sort of taking a, a windfall gain and moving away. Um, then they're flooding into those cities that I call the contagion cities. Um, and so they got overwhelmed. Uh, and, and so the, there's, a, there's a, mis, uh, a myth that those cities were overbuilt, that there was this, there was this um, bubble and they you know, built all these extra homes in these cities that we, you know, out in the desert that we didn't really need. They were actually just struggling to keep up with the actual demand for roofs over people's heads that would have preferred mm -hmm. to stay in L.A. and were forced out of L.A. Literally, there was no place left for them to live. And so uh, getting rid of a bubble, which is what the, all the federal policies were, were aimed at toward that 2006 to 2008 period, basically meant killing incomes, uh, you know, killing incomes enough so that people stopped doing that, so that people were too poor to want more house, basically. And we had to kill the income to uh, national income to make that happen. And then because after that, we uh, we continued to sort of treat that as an excess, as a bubble. Now the problem is not so much in a San Diego that still has just a cost problem because of supply. Now it's like in Omaha, the school teacher that should own a $150,000 house in a, you know, in a, decent neighborhood, you know, in the suburbs, um, if they didn't own that house already probably has a tough time qualifying for the mortgage that would actually lower their monthly expenses. Um, do you now? I mean, let's go, well, let's go back to, to, to your journey. I mean, so you have this passion, you find all this information, right now, what's the process I mean, for maybe even someone listening that, that is, is studying, that's going to university, going to college, and getting a master, whatever, and they find something that they feel is very important to share with the world, right? Mm -hmm. What's the process of even finding avenues to get funding for this? Because, I mean, before yeah. you put the book out there, I mean, that you're not really making money off it, I wouldn't think, until you actually get the book out there and then start selling the book. So what's the yeah. process like? I, I mean, it really is. A, uh, I, I'm amazed uh, whenever I think about how everything has come together, because it really is a special time in history. It's a special time in history because, uh, you know, tw 15 or 20 years before I started this research, none of this data would be have been available to me. I can go to the Census Bureau website now and click on a couple boxes and have, you know, 10 different data points for every city in the country to study. Um, I wouldn't have known where to begin to get that information, you know, not that long ago. Uh, and then getting that information and thinking about it and building, uh, um, you know, building a narrative about it. At the time I was blogging it. 
So blogs have sort of gone out of favor, but that's how I got it out there. I just made a website and started publishing and, and, and I would go to other blogs of, you know, a prominent economist like Tyler Cowen at Marginal Revolution or um, Scott Sumner at, uh, at uh, the Money Illusion. Um, and, and I would comment on their blogs and they, and they saw the value of the content that I was bringing. And so they would respond or they might even do a post where they would say, oh, look at what this guy's talking about. Uh, so it was really this, you know, the number of communication devices we have now, I, I think we've only just begun to really capture the power of what a, what a regular person can do today without the credentials and the connections. Um, and so, so really because we're in this magical time, I could make all these connections with people that normally would have never known, had an inkling of who I was. And eventually it was through those connections um, that, uh, you know, that uh, eventually the Mercatus Center uh, at George Mason University uh, in the Washington area, which is a, a think tank that Tyler Cowen, who does Marginal Revolution as the director of, um, they're the ones that that eventually then brought me on for a while as a visiting fellow and and um, supported the books and and other research that's been published through them. Um, but yeah, it's it's a magical time. You know, I I, uh, I think it's it'll be decades before we fully realize all the ways that um, all these ways of communicating can can connect us in ways that never were possible before. Well, well, talking about, I mean, the time, the future, where things are going, I mean, where do you see your your journey going? Is it more books, more speaking engagements? It's, I mean, where do you see your, your journey going? You know, I don't know. I, I my uh, This is the book, this is Building from the Ground Up that just came out um, uh, this uh, last month. And so I'm really, I'm finishing up some research that I've been working on um, through the Mercatus Center uh, that really um, try to uh, sort of creating new ways to sort of quantify, you know, there, there's several things that affect home prices in, say, a given metropolitan area. There's uh, supply constraints, there's interest rates, there is, um, uh, uh, you know, access to credit um, and you know, local incomes. And each one of those factors creates, uh, sort of leaves a certain footprint in, in the um in the market in that city uh, in ways that I don't think have been fully appreciated, partly because this whole, this whole weird thing where the richest cities have the least affordable housing and the, the richest people in this country are spending more on housing than the poorest people in this country are today, because to be rich, they have to move to San Francisco and spend $5,000 a month on a one bedroom condo or whatever. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, a lower income, lower middle income family can live in, uh, uh, you know, Knoxville, Tennessee for, you know, $1,200 a month for a nice house with a backyard. Right. So, um, so it's, we've created this weird situation in housing that really never, there was never a, a pool of data to think about these things before, because we didn't do this to our housing market before in the 20th century, if a city was successful, people moved to this, they built a bunch of houses and people moved there. So cities like Detroit in its heyday, was growing by 40% a decade. Uh, pe you know, people were moving there to work. Um, and so it, there's sort of this whole, it's sort of a whole new regime that I don't think anybody's taken account of 
how does it specifically how does it affect home prices in a city that's has very much very high demand for living there but won't build the houses to meet that demand um and so these papers are, are sort of creating a new framework to um to to look at those footprints and and so i think one of the things that happened in 2005 is a lot of the low-income housing in places like la that that skyrocketed in value that was blamed on the characters of that zip code you know and and how active say lenders or speculators were in that zip code and and partly what i'm sort of bringing to the conversation is that you know that zip code their prices were going up because people in richer zip codes were running out of housing and were substituting down into you know gentrification right is what people call mm -hmm. this and that comes from the lack of housing in the neighborhoods where they would normally be moving to if they had built more houses in those neighborhoods. So um, I found in the in the patterns that you see in in home prices, you can actually find ways to separate out those you know those factors. Where was it lending that was that was the issue, and where was it um, a lack of housing? You know, so what you end up having is people in San Diego. It's it's not so much the cost of lumber that's determining the price of the house you'd like to live in. It really is how many people with more income than you are trying to get into that same market. And are you the next person that's like too far, too low on the totem pole and you, and there's no house left for you because you're outbid. Oh, right? I, I, I've been saying it. I mean, probably since COVID, uh, I mean, the opposite kind of happened to, to our market here where I thought that was going to be some kind of catalyst to, to bring us back to where we were in 2007. You did the opposite being that less inventory went on the market because some people were afraid of having people at their property, showing their property, being in their property. And so we've kind of transitioned from, I want to be in this community to, I want to just be in San Diego County. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's true. Yeah. It, it's, it's really, it's really changed the mindset of, I just had to, I can afford this price. Find me anywhere you can in San Diego County. I'm willing to drive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really, you know, I just in general for all, all the cities, for those cities that I call the closed access cities, you know, I think there there is always this hope. I mean, it, it's really created a perversity, really, because it's almost like you're hoping that the economy of your city like gets knocked back on its knees enough to make it so it's not it's people don't value it as much in housing and book I'm affordable again. Right. It's it's really a sort of a perversity that we put into to our psyche. Um, and, and that whole superstar city idea, I think, um, feeds, feeds that notion and that sort of perverse hope, uh, and sort of one of the, one of the ideas that I put out that I don't think that, that, that hope is ever much is ever going to come of that because it's not, I mean, there are special aspects of these cities. I mean, obviously San Diego is a fabulous place to live or visit. Um, but at the end of the day, the reason they're expensive is because, they literally don't allow enough building just to like accommodate natural like births and deaths and, you know, and a little bit of international migration that every American city has. These cities just don't build enough to just accommodate that. So so it, it doesn't even take a lot of like, like I said, all these cities were building fewer houses than Detroit was before the financial crisis. So um, so all they need is demand as high as the demand to live in Detroit to overcome their housing production. Right. So. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I like Kansas City builds twice as many houses as L.A. Um, you know, my, so I say, why, let's have L.A. try to build as many houses as Kansas City 
And let's well, see if it's still as expensive, right? <laughs> but how would you compare the density to from LA to Kansas City? I mean, I would think they would have more room to grow, so that allows more expansion. Is that not the case? I, that is the case. I I think it's um, you know there there are plenty of ways to add housing. I, I think the difficulty. I wouldn't put the difficulty so much at like a geographical limit. It's mm. more that there are people that are already there that have a political say in what you can do, right? So, mm. so it's not that we don't know how to say become more like Manhattan or something. Like we have, we know how to make elevators and we know how to build twenty-story buildings and build up. subways. Um, what we what we've lost the ability to do is to get the permission of the. 500,000 people that live within three miles of that location who all have developed the political means to, to object to it. Um, and you know, that the, the demands that they make aren't necessarily always, um, uh, wrong or, you know, there, there's, it's not like there's no basis to those objections, but a city at its base is change. Cities couldn't exist if they hadn't changed the landscape that they exist on. And so, you know, Phoenix, where I am, is a, is a good example. The downtown has really been, um, it used to be a dead zone, and it's really become a, 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 a residential centerpiece of the, of the new city. Uh, and, you know, that means that a lot of duplexes and triplexes, it means some high-rise condos, uh, and the city is becoming better for that. Um, but, you know, the person that bought the little single-family home with a backyard on 15th Avenue, um, uh, 50 years ago is sad to see what they once had disappearing. Um, but it's not, a, but it's not a city of a hundred thousand people anymore. Um, and we can't, we can't sort of put our clamps on Phoenix and say, it's gotta be 1950 for the rest of eternity. You know, um, there's a new Phoenix that can, can live and be better for a lot more people. Uh, and, and it needs, we need to let it happen. You know, the reason we let it happen to begin with is how that first house got there to begin with. Right. I would be doing a, a disservice by not asking you, where do you see the, the market, uh, in your opinion, from all what you've learned from the past, going in the next five, 10 years? Uh, you know, uh, California is a very interesting situation because there's a lot of state level, uh, you know, y YIMBY is what the, you know, is the, is the sort of movement of like increasing the ability to build housing. And there's a lot of state level um, bills that have been passed that are really putting pressure on all the municipalities in California to allow more um, dense building to happen. And I think that'll be key in California, how much comes of that. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of fear about apartments being built and changes happening in the neighborhood. And I think once those changes start to happen, um, people will slowly, I think, realize that those changes weren't as terrible as what the worst fears about them are. You know, in a, in a way, the political ability to object to things actually sort of helps us inflate those fears, right? Because the because that's what we bring to the town meeting to, you know, to object. And that's where our focus is. Uh, so to the extent that there are political changes in California, that's what has to happen. And, and it's just, it, it, you know, we'll just have to see how the political um, uh, framework develops. In the rest of the country, uh, I think there's a couple interesting developments. I think we've sort of maxed out the amount of building that single family home builders can do um, for the existing market that can get mortgages. Um, 
And so what you're seeing in the last year or so really is all of a sudden this build to rent market is, is mushrooming. There's always been a little bit of that. You know, mo most of the single family home rental market has been mom and pops going back for decades. And after the um, financial crisis, there, there started to be an institutional, larger institutional market for that, where the private equity would come in and buy up 200 homes in the metro area and manage those as rentals. And now the home builders are getting into that where they're building whole neighborhoods for, you know, and then selling the neighborhood off as a single entity to a private equity well, renter. I've, I've seen more recently in, a, in, a, in California, but I've seen more recently here of devel developers building uh, apartment complexes mm -hmm. and keeping them for 10 years, right? And then selling them, converting them to condos because then uh, they, they, that, that 10 year basically lawsuit period kind yeah. of dwindles away. Yeah. Um, so I've seen yeah. that a little more recently. Yeah. Yeah. That whole condo liability issue is another, you know, that's just another one of this web of all these regulations that make it, you know, if you're in that industry and you might build a condo building where it's desperately needed, it it's that's that's a great example of a non-price issue that what you would just say, I'm not building that building, right? I don't care what price it is. It's yeah. not, I'm not taking the liability. And, and there's just a hundred different things like that 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 are cutting off building. So, but I think for the single family builders, that's going to be where we'll see the growth is this build to rent because there's this tremendous market. Rents have been skyrocketing for 15 years because we haven't been building in entry level single family homes. So they're being drawn in by the high rents. Now, mm -hmm. I, I think in the future, if we would loosen up lending, those will go back to being owned neighborhoods and the prices will probably rise a little bit to begin with. But in the long run, actually, what will happen is rents will go down and housing will become more affordable again if we loosen lending. Uh, but in the meantime, I think what will happen is the home builders, all the home builder growth will be through this build to rent market. Well, thank you, Kevin, for, for being here. If anyone's listening and they want to dive deeper into the books, may reach out to you. I mean, what's the best way of them doing that? Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, uh, K.A. Erdman uh, is probably the that's where I'm most active uh, on social media. So you have my DMs are open at Twitter if anybody has any questions or comments. Um, yeah, and that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Perfect. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, everyone listening, thank you for listening. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast. Please go follow Kevin on Twitter. Go look at his books. Go buy his books. And if you have any particular questions about the San Diego market, I might not know as much as Kevin across the board, but I could definitely help you uh, in Southern California. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for, for being here. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.